0: This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the library. It's great to see so many of you here. Thank you um, to the faculty members who brought classes. This is our second event in our one-book series about James Baldwin's Giovanni's Room, so I encourage you uh, to take a look at that book. It's a classic. Uh, We have, we had a panel discussion a week ago about the book, that's available from YouTube if you wanted to go look it up through the library's YouTube channel, it's good. And we have ongoing events uh, coming up this semester. Today's event, we're very grateful to have Jeffrey McCauley here. Uh, We wanted to um, have a way into this broader conversation. Um, We hear so much in in the media these days about same-sex marriage, um, marriage equality, um, this acceptance of LGBTQ people. But there's broader conversations going on within that community, those communities in some ways. And also, we wanted to have ways to understand terminologies, the way we talk about this, and move us into this deeper conversation as we go throughout the year. And luckily, we have an expert here to offer his sociological uh, views on that. No pressure. Thank you. Um, Also, coincidentally, today is, I'm going to get it right, Bisexuality Awareness Day as part of Bisexuality Awareness Week, and we did not know that until someone pointed that out to us, so um, this is appropriate, perhaps. Um, With that, let me introduce, uh, Jeffrey McCauley teaches sociology, a bunch of sociology classes, right? right. So Some of his students are here. If you haven't taken his class, you should. Uh, He holds a PhD in sociology from the University of Missouri and we're grateful that he's on our faculty and we're very grateful for his time and energy volunteering this lecture. So thank you, Jeffrey. With that, I'll turn it over to him. Thank you. Thanks, Troy. Can you all hear me all right
1: in the back? Awesome. Thank you. Uh, Before I get started, I'd just like to thank Troy Swanson, Tish Hayes, Joe Malarkey, and everybody from the library uh, who invited me to come. Uh, It's really an honor and a privilege to be here, Uh, so it makes me feel really nice, so thank you. Uh, Also, before I'd like to get started, I want to throw out a disclaimer. Uh, We're going to talk about, or I'm going to talk about some sensitive stuff. Uh, We're going to talk about some violent stuff, and there might be some parts of the conversation or parts of the pictures and the slides here uh, that might be a lot for some people. I know it's a lot for me, uh, so I just want to let you know that... uh, if I have, I might have to take a break halfway through because it's some pretty emotional material to go through today. Uh, to, what keeps me strong is I'm reminded of a quote by one of my favorite social activists called Maggie Kuhn. Uh, she was a, an old minister and she fought really hard to get rid of forced retirement. And she has a great quote that I love. It says, she says, speak your mind, even if your voice shakes. So during this presentation, at some point, it might be very likely that my voice is going to shake and I'm to need to take a break, uh, but I think that we can all get through it together. Sound good? Awesome. So here we go. Uh, so my presentation is basically divided into four different sections. Here we'll start. Ooh, I'll ship over that. Uh, we'll start with a conversation about what is this word queer? What does it mean? There's lots of different definitions depending on whom you ask. So we'll cover some of these differences here, and then we'll get a little bit sociological, just a little bit sociological, talking about the social construction of queer. We'll talk about queer discrimination, and we'll end with a uh, conversation about uh, queer social movements. Uh, how are we going forward into the future? Uh, And then we'll have maybe some question and answer, some conversation with everybody. So with that, let's go ahead and get started. So to start with, defining queer. What is queer? Well, again, depending on who you ask, this word might have lots of different definitions. A sort of standard textbook definition is What is queer is what is strange, what is unusual, what is odd. So when I think about what is queer, I always think of Lydia Dietz from Beetlejuice. Uh, She says, I myself am strange and unusual. And I think that's a pretty good capture of uh, what it means to be queer in this sort of dictionary sense. Somebody who's a little bit different. Uh, Based on this dictionary definition, this concept of uh, strangeness or difference or otherness has been applied to uh, gender and sexual minority groups because we are strange and unusual sometimes. Uh, so the word queer, it's often been associated negatively with gay people, lesbian people, bisexuals, transgender people, gender queer people, and pretty much anybody who's not heterosexual uh, and gender conforming. Uh, so the word has been used negatively to describe uh, these various different groups. And it's used as a way to other people to, uh, to say, this person is different from us. This person is wrong somehow. Uh, so that's how the word has been used quite a bit. The word queer has sort of a bad sound to it. If you call someone queer, that's a bad thing to say, right? If you think about the old playground game, smear the queer, that doesn't mean we're going to go have a party with the queer. It means we're going to go beat them up, right? Uh, so uh, it has this negative connotation. But if we look through uh, across time, we see that many groups like to reclaim the words that have been used against them negatively. We find this in lots of different groups uh, where they take the word that they've been called negatively and we say, I'm gonna make that my word now. Uh, We see that with lots of different groups, racial and ethnic minorities, Uh, women reclaim many words that have been used against women. So we have many queer people who have reclaimed the word queer and they basically say, we're here, we're queer, Get used to it, all right? It's a fact of life. Here we are. And it's a way of trying to take back this word. I'm going to make this my word now. Uh, So uh, it it means what I want it to mean. I own it now. Uh, So I can say it means whatever I want it to mean. What we find is that many people who uh, are gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, uh, they often try to say something like, well, we're just like everybody else. We should be treated just like everybody else. We shouldn't be discriminated against. We shouldn't do whatever. We should be treated just like everybody else. But many of us say, no, we're not just like everybody else. In fact, we are strange and unusual and odd, and that's what makes us great. Uh, so, so many people reuse this word queer as a good word, and that's the way that I'm going to use it during this presentation. Uh, queer as an empowering word. Uh, Still, there's more ways that the word queer is used. In academic circles, uh, in various philosophies, we see that the word queer is used in the context of queer theories. So this is really interdisciplinary. It includes everything from geography to sociology to feminism to history to political science, uh, this concept of queer theory. Uh, And one of the classic books of queer theory is a book called Gender Trouble by Judith Butler. And you can see here the cover of the book demonstrates the concept of queer. If you focus on the person on the left, left. The person on the left, it's, it's, we might be kind of confused in terms of what gender this person is performing. If you look closely at the picture, I know you two can see because you're right up front, uh, you'll be able to see that the picture has actually been cut to completely remove this person from the picture, literally and figuratively. Uh, so that's the other way that this word queer is used. In terms, It's a queer theory, a, a system of theories actually That explore the intersecting experiences of race, class, gender, sexuality, age, nationality, language, and all these other characteristics that provide our unique experiences of diversity in the world. But just to recap, the way that oh, there should be a blank slide there, sorry. Uh, The way, just to recap, the way that I'm going to use the word queer is in this empowering way. I'm not trying to be mean when I say it. Uh, That's the thing with words; you have to pay attention to the context in which they're used. Okay, so let's go ahead and get into the real part of the conversation here. Um, uh, The first major section of the presentation is social construction of queer. So we have to get a little bit sociological here. Sorry if you're not a sociology person, we'll keep it brief here. But one of the most basic theories within sociology is social construction theory. So what is social construction theory? Uh, Social construction theory is basically the perspective that social reality, the world around us, is a product of people's interactions with each other. We create the world around us. So if we're looking at our norms about gender and sexuality or anything, it's a product of culture. Uh, These things didn't come from heaven, they didn't come from biology, they came from people. And there are a couple clues for us that tell us if something is socially constructed. Uh, there's two major clues we can point to. If we, if we look at two different cultures and one culture does something this way and the other culture does it that way, that's a pretty big clue that it's a product of that culture, right? That culture created whatever that idea was. Uh, so if something varies from one culture to the next, that's a big clue it's socially constructed. Uh, the other big clue we have, if something is socially constructed, is that if it varies across time, if we look historically, well, here's how we used to do it, and now here's how we do it now, and it changed, well, that just shows that the culture has changed, all right? Our conceptions of social reality, like I said, they don't come from heaven, they don't come from nature, they come from people, all right? There is no, maybe you've seen the meme with Batman beating up Robin a little bit, Robin's trying to say, but human nature, Batman says no, there is no such thing as human nature, human nature is a social construct. We create these expectations that we have for one another. Uh, so now that we have a basic understanding of what social construction theory is, let's look at how queerness has been socially constructed. How has queerness been created uh, depending on the culture, depending on the time period and so on. To start with, I'd like to start with religious constructions of, queer, of queerness. Uh, so what do our major world religions have to say about queerness? If we look around the world, we're going to find lots of different religions, which are all a product of their own societies. Uh, we'll find lots of different religions with lots of different takes and perspectives on gender and sexual minority groups. Uh, we find some religions that are hostile, some religions that are welcoming. Uh, but all these religions are just a product of their own culture. So let's look at what some of these religions have to say. If we look in the Hebrew Bible, which Christians refer to as the Old Testament, we see all sorts of of uh, uh, rules and conversations regarding sexual behavior. Uh, One that's pointed to quite frequently is Leviticus 18.22. Leviticus 18.22 says, Man shall not lie with man as he does with a woman, for that is an abomination. So here we have this guy that got that tattooed on himself. Uh, Leviticus 18.22. I don't think this guy got too far into the Bible, though, because Leviticus 19.28 says you're not supposed to get tattoos. Uh, so uh, I think once he got to Leviticus 18.22, he just kind of quit reading after that. Uh, but anyway, we, could, we can point out various passages in the Hebrew Bible that have some sort of uh, some interpretations that people have uh, regarding gender and sexual minority groups. Uh, We could also look in the New Testament uh, within Christianity. And if we look in the book of Romans, Romans 126, it describes men who give up the natural use of women. Now, I don't know if women have a natural use, uh, but according to this, many people believe that women's natural use is to fulfill men's sexual fantasies. Uh, So men who give up this natural use of women uh, are described as shameful uh, in Romans 126. Uh, We also see in Islam, if we look in the Quran 781, uh, we see uh, men who approach other men with desire and how they are a transgressing people. Uh, You approach men with desire, therefore you're not like us. You're someone different from us. Uh, So we have lots of different, uh, in our Abrahamic traditions here, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, we might be able to find lots of passages in holy texts that condemn specifically uh, male homosexuality. Now, if there's any lesbians in the audience, rest assured, there's no conversation about women-women sex, so you, you can be fine there. Uh, now, so these are some religions that maybe have maybe a negative perspective, a negative construction of queerness, but we also have religions and spiritualities that have a more positive construction of queerness. And we have to look no further than where we are right now. If we look at many of the indigenous civilizations that were part of this continent before it was colonized by Europeans, we find many different uh, tribal civilizations that really uh, had a more positive outlook towards people who are gender and sexuality non-conforming. We could look at the Lakota Sioux, we could look at the uh, the Zuni, many different civilizations of indigenous peoples here who welcomed gender and sexual diversity. Uh, So here we have a person who is from the Zuni uh, civilization. Uh, This picture was taken in the 1800s. It's a The person can be called lots of different things. Many people refer to these people as a two-spirit person. And what two-spirit means is having both the masculine spirit and the feminine spirit. And these people were actually revered in their cultures. They were often the community leaders. They were often the spiritual leaders. Uh, They were often viewed as being so special that the great spirit gave them both the masculine and the feminine. So they're two-spirit. All right? Uh, So, and and we find this in lots of different indigenous civilizations to this continent. The idea of a two-spirit person being respected and revered. So it's interesting how in some cultures, with some religions, uh, gender and sexuality non-conforming people are revered and respected, and in other religions, they're reviled. But the important thing to remember is that religion is just a product of society. Religion varies from culture to culture, so it's also socially constructed we can see how the religious constructions of queerness have been used to inform the next part of the talk, which is the criminal constructions of queerness. So many old laws and penal codes were based off of religious uh, beliefs and religious uh, systems. So we see lots of examples of laws enacted against gender and sexuality non-conforming people uh, with religion in mind. Uh, So to start with, we could talk about sodomy laws. Uh, Sodomy laws, uh, basically, sodomy laws are going to vary from place to place in terms of what the law actually is talking about. But we find many sodomy laws that explicitly say that unnatural sex is forbidden. And depending on where you are, whatever that unnatural sex is might be a wide variety of things. It might be sex outside of marriage, uh, it might be anal sex, it might be masturbation. Uh, In lots of different places, people define uh, sodomy as just this unnatural sex whatever that means, all right? But we find that many people have, or many civilizations and, uh, and governments have taken this idea of sodomy, unnatural sex, to refer specifically to uh, male homosexuality. The word sodomy comes from uh, the word Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, the towns in the Bible that, uh, you know, people believe had homosexuality happening there. Uh, so if we look, we can see lots of examples of civilizations with sodomy laws. And we can start right here in the United States. Uh, Oh, there's laws there. Sorry, I forgot to show you my criminal picture. Uh, if, so if we look at the United States, let's uh, go just a little bit back in history but when we were still colonies here, all right? We had the New Haven colony. So you see uh, Connecticut here. Uh, so there's Connecticut, we had this little New Haven colony which was eventually taken over by the colony of Connecticut but for a while it was its own colony. And in New Haven, in the New Haven colony, uh, male homosexuality uh, was uh, criminalized through sodomy laws and the punishment was the death Penalty. All right, this was the penalty in New Haven, in Connecticut, uh, in 1860 or 1665. Uh, so we can see there's a, there's a long history in, in this country of having these laws. If we look into the future, which is still the past, I guess, but if we look going to the future from 1665, uh, we can see that many states had sodomy laws, and they were slowly repealed over time. So let's look at our map here. Uh, if we look at Illinois because that's where we are. It's a good place to start, right? Illinois repealed its sodomy laws prior to 1970, but it actually had some of the strictest sodomy laws. Uh, in Illinois, uh, if, you had, if two men had consensual sex, not talking about rape, talking about consensual sex, that would be associated with a one-to-five-year jail term, a 100 to 500 dollars fine, and 500 lashings, 500 times of being whipped all right, uh, for male-male homosexuality. But thank goodness, uh, Illinois repealed its sodomy laws prior to 1970s. And if you look, as the colors get a little bit darker, uh, you can see as the decades go by. The light orange repealed, they were repealed in the 1970s. The dark orange were repealed in the 1980s. The light red were repealed in the 1990s. Don't steal your books. Uh, The medium red was repealed in 2000-2002. But it's the dark red states uh, that are really interesting. Our southern states, Michigan, uh, Idaho, Utah. uh, If we we look at the dark red states, uh, these states never actually repealed their sodomy laws. And it took the federal government in 2003 to say, okay, we're going to make this the law of the land. In 2003, the federal government then effectively repealed all of the state's sodomy laws that hadn't yet repealed them. So this begs the question, had the federal government not repealed these laws who knows you know if they would still be in place in some of these states right Okay, so that's looking at the United States. Let's do some cross-cultural examples. Uh, If we look around the world, there are tons of countries that have anti-sodomy laws, far too many for me to even try to list here. Uh, So I figured we could focus on maybe some of the more significant ones. If we look at, for instance, India, Sierra Leone, Singapore, Tanzania, Uganda, we're going to find that these countries have Uh, life-in-prison sentence for sodomy. So, uh, consensual homosexual sex results in life-in-prison in in jail. Um, But that's not nearly as bad as if you were in the ten countries that come with the death penalty still today. If we're looking at uh, Ethiopia, Iran, Iraq, Maritonia, Nigeria, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, United Arab Emirates, and Yemen... Uh, all have the death penalty associated with consensual gay sex, basically. Uh, In many cases, it's a function of Sharia law that applies specifically to Muslims. Uh, But we, we see that in 10 countries, you might be put to death for consensual gay sex. Another place in history that we sometimes forget is Nazi Germany. Uh, We have lots of conversations about who died in Nazi Germany, but we often forget that it was also uh, gay people and and other gender and sexuality non-conforming people uh, who were killed in Nazi Germany. All right, so uh, those are some laws looking at same-sex sexuality, but we could also find laws that had to deal deal with uh, uh, gender expression, all right, for transgender people specifically. Uh, and here we can come, come back to the United States. If we look in New York State, the New York Penal Code has all sorts of laws, and I promise I'm not going to read all this to you. Uh, but this is an old law that's on the books in New York State, and subsection, and it's a, it's a law about loitering. And there's a specific section, section four, that's been used to police transgender people. And if you, in the front, you can see it now. Uh, but uh, basically, what it has to do with is people who Wear quote-unquote inappropriate clothing, all right? And what the New York State Police interpreted this law to say that if any person was wearing less than three articles of gender-appropriate clothing, then that was considered loitering and you could be arrested. All right? So if we're talking about a transgender man, for instance, someone who was born and identified as female, but later identified himself as male, uh, and this person is you know, going about his business in town wearing men's clothing, men's trousers, underwear, shoes, and shirt and whatnot, uh, if he was stopped by the police, uh, the police would uh, search him and find out that he, they would identify him as female and say that he was not wearing three articles of gender-appropriate clothing and he would be hauled away to jail, all right? Uh, so, so we see that there's been laws that have been put in place to police the behavior of all sorts of gender and sexuality non-conforming people. So there's, there's a long history of problems with law here. Uh, The next major construction of queerness, which many people viewed as a sort of step in the right direction, is the medical construction of queer. Uh, So this is a pretty significant change in the history of how we think about these things. Prior to to the medical constructions of queerness, uh, like we said, people understood that you were a sinner or people believed that you were a criminal, uh, that you did something wrong. With the medical construction of queer, there was a very different stance. It wasn't that you did something wrong, it's that you were sick, all right? So rather than punishing this person, we needed to help this person. So in some ways, many people really did believe that it was a a great step in the right direction. Uh, But as we're going to find out, there are still some problems with this medical construction of queer. So let's explore those. Uh, First, we'll talk about homosexuality, and then we'll talk about gender expression. Uh, The American Psychiatric Association... Oh, there's the medical sign. Sorry about that. I forgot to put all these pictures in here. There's too many slides to keep track of. Uh, The American Psychiatric Association uses something called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. This is basically like a handbook that outlines all of the mental disorders that exist and what are the criteria for having those mental disorders. The first edition of this book was published in 1952, and people who were gay, lesbian, bisexual, uh, they were described as, first of all, having a mental disorder, because it's on the cover of the book, uh, but they were also, the specific disorder that they had was called sociopathic personality disturbance. So in the 1950s, if you were gay, you were considered a sociopath. All right, you were considered as mentally ill. All right. Well, many people didn't like the sound of that. Many people liked it though. They said, well, at least at least it's something that you can help me with. It's not that I did something wrong. It's just that I'm sick. All right. So many people liked it, but other people said, no, I'm not a sociopath. Uh, let's see if we can let's see if we can re- redefine this. So in 1968, uh, the American Psychiatric Association came out with a second edition. They, they realized that they made some errors, maybe, and they wanted to change some of the diagnoses here. Uh, so then they, instead of calling uh, gay and lesbian bisexual people as having sociopathic personality disturbance, now we said that they, are, they have sexual deviation, uh, which is still descri- described as a mental disorder because it's in the book of mental disorders, but they said sexual deviation. So at least at least we were no longer sociopaths. Now we're just deviants, which uh, maybe it doesn't sound so bad that way. Uh, But many people still had a problem with this, and uh, they had to reprint the second edition of this book because people didn't like the being called uh, sexual deviation, so they reprinted the book in 1973, calling it Sexual sexual Orientation Disturbance. So now we're apparently disturbed, all right, And, and actually I am pretty disturbed by all this. Okay, uh, so now, like I said, many people believe this as a step in the right direction. I can be helped now, but the problem is the way in which people tried to help. Uh, we, the American Psychiatric Association and many sort of professional mental health professionals believed in what's called reparative therapy or conversion therapy, where essentially we take a person who's gay, lesbian, or bisexual and try to give that person some therapy to make that person heterosexual. And one of the places that's uh, notorious, infamous for this, is Atascadero State Hospital. Uh, which is apparently an accredited facility, they say, but maybe we can question that when we look at what they did. Uh, so, in the 1950s and 1960s, if uh, maybe if parents found out that their kid was gay, uh, they would send their kid to this state hospital in order to be cured, to be fixed. And the things that went on there were absolutely horrific. Uh, Without people's consent, men were castrated, which means their testicles and penis were cut off in an attempt to make them heterosexual, of course, without their consent. Uh, they were given frontal lobotomies where we go inside your brain and swish everything around and you're never the same after that. All sorts of forced hormone treatments and all sorts of other treatments, uh, chemical treatments that were forced on people um, in, an, in a supposed attempt to fix them, to correct them. All right, because they were considered, like we said, mentally ill. Uh, sexual orientation is no longer discussed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, but transgender people are still included, all right? With the publication of the DSM-III, uh, and that was in 1980, uh, transgender people were considered to have gender identity disorder. So they have a mental, a mental disorder. Gender identity disorder was uh, the specific diagnosis that they had. And, then, and again, many transgender people said, well, I don't feel like I have a mental disorder. Uh, I, I feel fine, actually. I don't have a mental disorder. Uh, so just last year, the American Psychiatric Association published the DSM-5, and they removed gender identity disorder and replaced it with gender identity dysphoria. And dysphoria means confusion. And I imagine that there are many transgender people who would say, I'm not confused. It's probably actually a society that is confused by me. So we can see that the, that the mental health issue was, for some people, a step in the right direction. You're no longer a sinner. You're no longer a criminal. But now you're certifiably insane. Uh, so maybe that's a step in the right direction. It seems like it's just treading water, if you ask me. Another way that we can look at the construction of queerness is through mass media. Uh, So if we're talking about widespread popular forms of media, widespread books and movies and TV shows and all these other sorts of mass media which we consume all the time. Uh, To start with, we can see that there's a variety of tropes that are used in media to portray queer people. But before we get to the tropes, we have to look at this slide. Do you see anything? Exactly. For the longest time in mass media, there was no representation of queer issues whatsoever. So if we're looking at what were the most popular movies, the most popular books, the most widely disseminated uh, pieces of mass media, didn't really have any representation of queer people whatsoever. So young queer people who are consuming mass media really had the idea that we were alone, that there was no one like us, because we couldn't see in the world anyone who was portrayed who, who looked like us, who acted like us. All right, And slowly, across time, uh, ma- major forms of mass media did start to include the voices of gender and sexuality, non-conforming people, queer people. And here we can start to look at the tropes that they came up with. The first trope is the stereotype trope. So we all know what a stereotype is. That's when we overgeneralize about a population. We kind of lump everybody together and we exaggerate some characteristic and say, well, they're all that way, right? Uh, if we look at when lesbians first started becoming uh, visible in mainstream mass media, pretty much the only lesbian you would ever see would be a butch lesbian, a masculine woman. So if we look at the writings of Radcliffe Hall, The Well of Loneliness, The Unlit Lamp, we're going to find uh, a masculine image of a lesbian. Now, of course, we have all different types of lesbians, and thank goodness for all of them. We have feminine lesbians and masculine lesbians and genderqueer lesbians. But for the longest time, all you would ever see was this butch masculine idea of lesbian. And we find the opposite with gay men, of course. We have Jack from Will and Grace. I'm sure we've probably seen countless examples of the gay man on TV who's going to come over and redecorate your house or give you a makeover or show you uh, how to apply your makeup or something like that. This stereotype trope. And uh, we can also see the same thing among transgender people. Transgender people are often portrayed as insane, which, according to the American Psychiatrics Association, they are insane. Uh, so, for instance, we have to look no further than Jerry Springer. Uh, how like, I don't know if anybody actually watches this show, but you probably don't have to watch too many episodes before you come across an episode like this. My girlfriend is really a man. But I bet that that woman would, would identify as a woman, so we should probably call her a woman and not a man, right? Uh, So the stereotype trope is just one trope that's used by uh, by many outlets of mass media. There are still other ones. Another major trope in mass media is bury your gaze trope. Uh, now, this one shows uh, sort of a, if we look in many forms of popular media, uh, the gay characters don't necessarily have a happy ending, all right? There are countless examples here where the gay character is killed off in the end, or, uh, you know, there's, well, that's what it is, bury your gaze. The person gets killed in the end. I don't want to give away the ending to our One Book, One College book this year, but I'll give you a big hint. It fits within the bury your gaze trope. All right? But we can see it in lots of other places, too. Uh, anybody seen Brokeback Mountain? You're probably familiar with this. It's not a happy ending for the gays, right? If we look in The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, again, in novels, we see the same thing. Bury your gaze trope. Uh, the gays don't get a happy ending. Uh, the, the queer people don't get a happy ending. Uh, so bury your gaze is another very common trope in media. Another trope in media is the hide your lesbians trope. Now, this is one uh, that's really interesting. We might have a book or a TV show or a movie, and it has two women in it. And these two women seem really close to each other. It's like, is there something going on between these two? But they'll never be really explicitly clear about it. They'll never say uh, that they are in a relationship, but they'll kind of, you know, dance around it a little bit. And my favorite example here is, Zena and Gabrielle does anybody know Zena and Gabrielle Zena and Gabrielle are so popular among the lesbians because the lesbians can say oh my gosh here's a here's a prime time television show with two women who love and care for each other and respect one another of course if you watch Zena you're never actually going to find them uh, demonstrating that or talking about their love or being shown as a, as a romantic unit. Uh, so it's sort of the, the, the hide your lesbians trope is set up in such a way that if you want to see it, you'll see it. But if you don't want to see it, you won't see it. So many people are going to watch Xena and say it has nothing to do with lesbians. And many other people are going to watch Xena and say that has everything to do with lesbians. This is just one example, though. There's lots of examples. Uh, Alex Cabot and Olivia Benson from Law & Order SVU. Anybody ever thought about that one before? Uh, there's, There's lots of confusion here. Are they an item? And, you know, people will say, well, in this episode they did this, and in this episode they did that. I think they're an item. But it's never actually made explicitly clear. We want to hide the lesbian relationship. We want to conceal women's sexuality. Another trope is bisexual erasure. So again, I have a blank slide for you here. Uh, Erasure, to erase, right? If we look in mass media, it's very hard to find examples of bisexual people in widespread forms of media. We see gay people, we see lesbian people, we see transgender people, but it's, it's very actually uncommon that we'll find a mainstream media source that portrays bisexual people. Whether positively, negatively, stereotypically, or otherwise, they're almost non-existent in mainstream media uh, sources. Uh, the last thing we could look at here are maybe positive portrayals. Uh, what are some positive portrayals of queer people in mass media? Uh, I like to think about it this way. Why don't we have a TV show or a movie where it shows a, a lesbian or a transgender person as just a regular person, right? Well here's going to be a movie and he's got the transgender person and I'm going to go to the grocery store and now I'm going to walk my dog and well, now I've got to pay my bills. Uh, just like we all have to do, right? I think maybe part of the reason we don't have that show is it doesn't sound like it'd be very interesting. If we watch somebody's day-to-day life, it sounds like it might be a lot of Seinfeld jokes. Uh, But we we really don't have uh, so many positive portrayals of gender and sexuality non-conforming people where they're just shown as everyday regular people. There's always some gay plot or some uh, gay twist or something mixed into the portrayal. Uh, So through mass media is another way that we construct ideas about what it means to be gender and sexuality non-conforming, what it means to be queer. Uh, Let's move to part three of the talk. Uh, uh, Here I would like to talk about queer discrimination. And if we're thinking about discrimination, it can happen on multiple different levels. Um, I picked two levels here, the interpersonal level and the institutional level. Uh, So interpersonal discrimination, this is when just talking about informal groups, just people kind of getting along just in small settings where we maybe treat someone different because of who they are. That's what interpersonal discrimination is. Institutional discrimination, this is when we have governments or businesses or other large organizations that actually create policies intended to target discrimination towards queer people. So that's what we'll look at here. Let's start with the interpersonal discrimination. Uh, the first example I have for interpersonal discrimination is uh, what I like to think of as interrogation. Anybody who's a minority group well, will maybe be able to connect with this. Doesn't matter what type of minority group you are. Uh, if you're around the dominant group and you're the minority person, everybody always wants to know, well, what's up with you? Why are you that way? How does it feel to be you? Uh, so queer people get asked all sorts of questions that might be absurd if we ask them to people who aren't queer. For instance, I get asked the question, well, when did you first realize you were gay? Like, oh, what an interesting question. Uh, that, That question maybe sounds like an interesting question to ask. Oh, I'd like to know the answer to that question. But what I think is more interesting than the answer to the question is the question itself. What if we turn that question around? When did you first realize you were gay? What if we turn that around? When did you first realize you were straight? Right? If, if we ask a straight person, when did you first realize you were straight, that's going to seem like kind of an absurd question, right? Well, what do you mean when did I first realize I was straight? That sounds like a stupid question. Well, that is a stupid question. And so is, when did you first realize you were gay? It's, it's just as absurd to for, when the gay person gets asked that question. Another one of my favorites is, if maybe a straight guy asks me or a straight woman asks me, well, how do you know you're gay if you've never had sex with a woman? And then I'll turn it around. I'll ask the woman, well, how do you know you're straight if you've never had sex with a woman? Right? It, it, works, it works both ways, right? And uh, if, we, if we pose the same question that's asked to the minority group, to the dominant group, all of a sudden it sounds absurd. And yet we still ask these questions all the time to the minority group. We can also see the same thing happening for transgender people. We, ask the, we interrogate and we ask the question, uh, when did you first choose to be transgender? And this one is a very loaded uh, question, it has a whole lot of problems here. First of all, nobody chooses to be transgender. One's gender identity is not a choice. Uh, If we say, okay, well, when did you choose not to be transgender? That sounds absurd, right? When did you choose not to be transgender? Uh, There's no choice involved with gender identity. Uh, Maybe people might choose to change their name. People might choose to dress in a certain way. People might choose to have gender reassignment surgery, but no one chooses to be transgender, all right? So this conversation of choice is a bit problematic. But overall, this interrogation is just another example of how we ask the minority group, why are you the way you are? We hardly ever ask the dominant group, gosh, what's it like to be you? But we have to interrogate the minorities. This is true for lots of different minorities. Another form of interpersonal discrimination are the dirty looks and stares that people get, right? And again, anybody who's a minority group might experience this too if you're around the dominant culture. If you're a racial ethnic minority around a bunch of white people or if you have some sort of physical disability or something else, people give you funny looks, right? If you're walking down the street and you're holding your girlfriend's hand, lesbians, people might give you a funny look. It's another form of interpersonal discrimination. We don't give everybody the dirty look. We give the strange and unusual people the dirty look. The queer people get the dirty look. Another form of interpersonal discrimination Another form of interpersonal discrimination is shunning. Uh, so shunning is when you basically get kicked out of your group. So we got all the group over here and they kick one of us out, right? This happens all the time for gender and sexuality nonconforming conforming people. Uh, whether uh, it's in their families due to religious beliefs or cultural beliefs or whatever the beliefs are, we find that people get evicted from their social circles, from their family networks, and then might be left to create their own. Uh, so shunning is another form of uh, interpersonal discrimination. The last form of interpersonal discrimination that I'll talk about is what many people call bullying. And I actually despise the word bullying. Uh, this is, when I think of bullying, this is what I think of. I think of a cute little clip art picture, all right? Bullying, the word bullying, doesn't really capture the horrific nature of this violence. So instead of saying bullying, I like to use the language that the criminal justice system uses, which is assault and battery. According to, common, uh, according to common law, assault is when you threaten someone with violence, and battery is when you actually commit violence against someone. I don't say bullying. Bullying makes it sound like it's not as bad as it actually is. I say assault and battery. And what we find is assault and battery happens all the time to queer people, from grade school well into adulthood. All right? We have all sorts of queer people in grade school who are assaulted and battered every single day in school growing up. Uh, Even as an adult, uh, we experience assault and battery. Uh, I myself, earlier this month, I was walking home in my own neighborhood. Sorry if this is too graphic for you. In my own neighborhood, I was walking home and I was attacked. I might be emotional here. I was attacked from behind. I was slammed to the ground, choked, and called a fag by a uniformed Chicago police officer. This was in my neighborhood when I was walking home. This is not an, I wish I could say this is an isolated incident, but it's really not. This sort of thing happens all the time. If we hear in the news all the time conversations about oppression for racial and ethnic minorities by police, but we hardly ever hear the conversations in news about oppression against queer people by police. Uh, I'm not trying to say all police are bad, but queer people have a long history of oppression by police. Uh, this assault and battery has life and death consequences for us. If we look at suicide among queer teens, it is significantly higher than any other population. Uh, Now, the statistics are really hard to measure here uh, because it's really hard to figure out how many people are queer because many people aren't out and many people who who commit suicide don't leave a suicide note. So it's kind of hard to figure out the statistics here. But according to the best statistics that we do have, we find that lesbians, gay people, and bisexual people uh, attempt suicide four times as often as heterosexual people do. Uh, Youth, I'm talking about teenagers in high school. They're four times as likely to attempt suicide than heterosexual teens, all right? And we're already talking about a very small percentage of the population, LGB people. So if if they're even more likely to commit suicide, we're losing even more of our community. Same thing with transgender people. Same thing with the statistics too. It's hard to capture the the weight of the statistics here because people aren't always out and people don't always leave notes. Uh, But if we look again at the best research we have, at least half of all transgender people have either seriously contemplated suicide or actually tried it or actually were successful at it. At least half have seriously contemplated suicide. And when I say seriously contemplate, I mean like planned it out and figured out what am I gonna do? How is it all going to work? And maybe even tried to do it. At least half. We don't have half of all cisgender people trying to commit suicide. Cisgender is people who aren't transgender. Uh, so we see extremely high suicide rates among uh, queer people. We also see extremely high rates of murders for queer people. Uh, there are so many names that could be listed off here. I thought about telling the story of Brandon Tina or Matthew Shepard. There are so many names, though, that you know I could talk all day and we would never be done. Just in 2014, alone in this country, every month someone is murdered. Uh, so I, I can't tell you all these names because there are far too many of them and we don't know all of them. But I can tell you about one story. Uh, this is an upstairs lounge. This is a bar that was in New Orleans. And this is in 1973, the upstairs lounge. Uh, it was an upstairs bar. There was only one way to get in the front door. There was no back door. It was a gay bar. Uh, we had people who threw Molotov cocktails, which are basically like a fire bomb, into the bar and then barricaded the door shut. All right? Everybody inside... Died. If we look at the picture here, this is taken the next evening uh, afterwards. But that whole night, nobody cleaned up the scene. The whole next day, nobody cleaned up the scene. Nobody cared. We have this picture when they finally did get there. Here's a person who's trying to escape, this dead body of a person trying to escape. And it only became convenient to clean up later the next day uh, when, when we would get around to cleaning it up. All right. I wish that I could say this is an isolated incident. I wish I could say that this is the one time this happened. But unfortunately, these sorts of things happen all the time, historically in this country and around the world. So interpersonal discrimination against queer people is a very significant problem. So is institutional discrimination against queer people. Well, remember when I said institutional discrimination, we're talking about uh, governments or organizations that have created policies that explicitly make it hard for queer people to live. Uh, so one example, uh, which Troy mentioned in the introduction, is the conversation about gay marriage. So if we look at gay marriage, it really depends whether or not it's legally recognized. Really depends on what state you're living in in this country. All right, the blue, I won't go through all the colors here. Um, afterwards, if you're interested, we could go back to it. But the dark blue states uh, have uh, recognized same-sex marriage, and uh, the reds, in the red states, same-sex marriage is banned. Uh, Many people are hopeful that the same thing will happen with sodomy. If if enough of the states uh, allow same-sex marriage to happen, then maybe eventually the federal government will go through and do it. Although there are also some pretty strong criticisms of gay marriage, and I'll get to those in in the concluding remarks. Another major form of institutional discrimination is employment discrimination. As of right now, there is no federal law that prevents employment discrimination based off of gender and sexuality. Uh, you know how when you apply for a job, there's a thing that says, we do not discriminate against race, class, nationality, language, and so on. There's no federal law that says you can't discriminate based off of gender expression or sexual orientation. Uh, that's, up, that's left up to the states. So let's look at what the states have. Here, uh, so in the purple states, sexual orientation and gender expression are protected in all jobs. Doesn't matter what type of job it is, they're protected categories. In the blue states, only sexual orientation is uh, protected for all jobs. So, for instance, in Wisconsin, uh, if your boss if your boss said, "I'm firing you because you're a lesbian." That would be illegal because they protect sexual orientation in Wisconsin. But if your boss said, I'm firing you because you're transgender, that's totally legal. You'd have no legal recourse against that. If you were to go file a complaint, I mean, you could try to take the person to court, but they didn't break any law, all right? Uh, Let's look at the other two states are the other colors of states. Uh, In the pink states, these protect sexual orientation and gender expression in state jobs, all right? So if you're working for the state, they don't allow discrimination for uh, sexual orientation and gender expression. But in the other job, that's fine. They can be discriminated against. And uh, in the teal states, uh, they protect only sexual orientation in the state jobs. The gray states, those are the ones we need to look at. The gray states, in these states, uh, there's no protection whatsoever for gender and sexual minorities. Uh, so in any of the gray states, your boss could literally say, I don't want any lesbians working here, so I'm going to fire you. And there was nothing that was illegal about that. All right? So we see institutional discrimination happening in the forms of employment discrimination. Uh, we can also see institutional discrimination in terms of housing discrimination. If you want to go try to sign a lease somewhere, you want to get an apartment, uh, we see that this is also going to vary state by state. There is no federal legislation that prevents discrimination against gender and sexual minorities in terms of housing. Uh, so if we look here, a uh, so couple only a few states that are protected, right? If we look at the purple states, the purple states uh, have, they, they protect all LGBT people, uh, anybody of any gender expression or sexual orientation from housing discrimination. The blue states only protect sexual orientation so again in Wisconsin the, the landlord could say i'm not going to hire i 'm not going to let you live here because you 're a lesbian and that would be illegal because sexual orientation is protected there. But in Wisconsin, if the landlord said i'm not going to let you live here because you 're transgender." That's totally legal. They, they could get away with that. But most of the states, as you can see, are gray. Most of the states have no protection for queer people in terms of housing discrimination. In most of the states, the landlord has every legal right to refuse to let someone live there because of their sexual orientation or their gender expression. Uh, another form of... Uh, So far I've looked at institutional discrimination in terms of law, but we could also look at institutional discrimination in terms of uh, companies and businesses and schools in terms of whether or not they discriminate, and uh, whether or not they have uh, policies and facilities and procedures in place um, to make everyone feel safe. And one of the big hot button issues now is the issue of gender non-specific bathrooms. Uh, Moraine Valley actually is pretty ahead of the curve. We have a couple uh, gender non-specific bathrooms on campus and we're working on getting more, Uh, but many places have, uh, there's no place for someone who is gender non-conforming to go to the bathroom. Uh, Think about this, I I know Moraine Valley students who prior to having gender non-specific bathrooms on campus would go all day without going to the bathroom until they could go home. Could you imagine going all seven or eight hours, however long you're here every day, holding it in because there's no comfortable place for you to go to the bathroom, right? Imagine if we have a transgender man, someone who was born and called a woman who transitioned to be male. Well, that person identifies as a man, so he's not going to use the women's restroom, of course. But if he goes into the men's restroom, the men who are there might tell him that he's not welcome there, right? So thankfully, Moraine Valley is ahead of the curve on this one. Uh, But not everywhere is. Uh, We could also look at companies in terms of their discriminatory policies. Uh, Delta Airlines is a good example here. Anybody fly Delta lately? Let's see. Uh, Delta Airlines, in 1987, in a court case, Delta Airlines argued that if a plane crashed and there were gay people who died, Delta ought to be able to pay less to the survivors of that person's family because they probably would have died from AIDS Anyway, This is is exactly what Delta Airlines argued in court. If a gay person dies in a plane crash, we should be able to pay their survivors less because they probably would have died from AIDS anyway. That was 1987. 1987 wasn't that long ago. Uh, So there's, you know, again, I wish that I could say that these are isolated incidents, but there are so many examples of the same thing over and over and over again that I just had to pick some examples to share with you. Let's move on to the last part of the talk here, uh, talking about queer social movements. So if we have this history of oppression, where are we going from here, all right? How, how can we change this? The modern queer social movement, uh, many people kind of say the modern queer uh, civil rights movement probably began with the Stonewall Inn riots. So here we have the Stonewall Inn, which is a gay bar, a, a queer bar in New York City. It's still there. If you ever go on vacation, go check it out if you want to, uh, when you're 21. Uh, there's, so, at this bar, they were constant the, every weekend, they would constantly be raided by the police. The police would go into this bar and try to be enforcing these laws. So, they would make sure that nobody was dancing with someone of the same gender. Or they would go there and make sure that everybody had at least three articles of gender-appropriate clothing. And if you didn't, you would be arrested, you'd be hauled away, and all sorts of terrible things happened, including being beaten and raped and murdered. Uh, eventually, the queer people here got fed up with it, sick and tired of it, and they fought back. Uh, it, was the end of, it was the end of June in 1969. They rioted for days. Uh, and, and so, this is sort of believed to be the catalyst of the modern gay rights movement. So, if we look around the country, in, in many major big cities, we find at the end of June, uh, many cities have a pride festival, right? Chicago has a pride festival near the end of June. It's to, com- it's to commemorate the Stonewall Riots. So here we have our pride parade, which if anybody's been to one, this is probably a pretty tame picture of what you might see there. Uh, so, the, so, so in terms of pride, it's uh, the pride parades and the pride celebrations, it's often viewed as, as a really amazing thing. It's a place where people can find community, where people can uh, realize that they're not alone, find other people who are like them. But it's not without criticism either. Queer people still bully each other, all right? I, or I said bully, sorry about that. Queer people still assault each other. Queer people still batter each other. And another problem with our queer pride parades is they're often brought to us by corporate America. So here we go. Gay pride brought to you by J. P. Morgan Chase, right? Let's go ahead and help Chase out some more because they need some more help from us. Uh, so so the pride festivals happen around the country uh, at the end of June uh, to commemorate this uh, so that's one that 's one form of social movement it 's just awareness uh, celebrations. Another social movement is this uh, change for gay marriage right so I said i 'd come back to this at the end. Many people are saying oh well gay marriage it 's it's, it's happening it's it 's becoming the law of the land isn 't that amazing but it 's also not without criticism right Many people who identify as queer believe that this gay marriage conversation is not a conversation that we should be having. Uh, It basically kind of goes like this. You know, if we're arguing for gay marriage, it's saying, we're just like you. We're just like everybody else. We should have the same rights and privileges as everybody else. But many queer people are going to say, I'm not just like everybody else. I am strange and unusual. And rather than trying to make my life fit some heteronormative standard of what marriage should look like, maybe we could create our own types of families and our own types of relationships. Uh, so, So the gay marriage debate is not universally welcomed by all people who are queer. Not all gay people support gay marriage. Uh, another, another major social movement is the Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So here we have Uncle Sam, I want you, but not for the U.S. Army. No gays allowed. And maybe you remember a couple of years ago, uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which was brought to us by Bill Clinton. Uh, don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. Right? So they undid it. And many people celebrated. Hooray, the gays can be part of the military now. Uh, but when I was little, I was always excited. Well, I'm gay. That means I don't have to be part of the military. They won't take me. <laughs> that, that was a good thing. I liked that growing up. Uh, uh, so, So this is not without criticism. Many people say we shouldn't be trying to fight to be part of the military, especially considering that much of the rest of the world believes the United States military is a terrorist organization. We probably shouldn't try to be participating in that. So it's not without criticism. Uh, another social movement we could look to are hate crimes legislation. Hate crimes legislation basically says if I'm going to hurt this person because of who that person is, then that should come up with a stiffer penalty, a higher fine, longer time in jail or whatever. But again, many queer people are going to say we have such a long history of oppression by police. I'm not going to seek police to solve my problems, right? There's too much bad blood there uh, to sort of rely on police to make everything better, considering that we've been beaten and raped and murdered by them. Uh, What I think is most hopeful is the youth. Uh, I think that in any generation, in any generation, if we're talking about young people, middle-aged people, old people, in any generation, we're going to have some people who try to hold on to the past who resist change. And we're going to have some people who just do their best to try to live in the present. And we have some people who try to reach for the future, who try to create the future. And it's those of you who try to reach for the future in whatever generation you are who have the biggest responsibility. It's your responsibility to make sure that we have a world without oppression. And to you, I say, thank you. Thank you. Uh, So we have a little bit of time with question and answer. Uh, Troy's over here, he's got the microphone, so he's gonna hop around. If anybody has some questions, uh, if you want me to go into more detail with anything, uh, I'm happy to answer whatever questions we have until the class period session's over.
0: I saw you first then. I'm just curious, did anything happen to the policeman who attacked you? It's
1: still under investigation. Yeah, the independent police gonna
0: happen, probably. I I doubt
1: it. But it's documented. That's all I'm concerned about is that it's documented.
0: I would be worried that he's going to come and do it to you again
1: or something. That's why I documented it cuz I figured if it's documented then I'm probably not going to be attacked again, at least not by the same officer. But yeah, I'm worried about that too.
0: And thank you for sharing such a personal Yeah. Concern. this month. Are there any clubs here?
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, we actually have a great student organization on campus. It's called GASP, Gender and Sexuality Progress. Uh, Judy's the advisor over here, uh, one, of, uh, one of the advisors. Uh, if anybody's interested in coming to the club, we meet every Thursday at 2.30 in U209. So come check out the club. Uh, queer, ally, everybody's welcome. So, yeah. Other questions?
0: Maybe even define the term ally. I don't know if anyone Oh, knows
1: uh, an ally is someone who's nice. <laughs> All <right>. simple enough <laughs> I like a concise explanation other questions anything that makes sense I need to go over more detail I, there's the one back. way in the back yeah, I'm coming we got to have the microphone so that way everybody can hear the question when it gets asked um I'm just wondering if why shouldn't why is it offensive to ask questions interpersonal questions when the gay community wants us to accept them? Isn't part of accepting understanding? Yes, totally. Uh, So I think here the question is like the whole interrogation thing, like why are you gay or when did you realize you were gay? I think a lot of times uh, it depends on how the questions are asked, right? If the question is asked from a perspective of radical wonder, where like I'm really genuinely interested in you as a person and I want to get to know you better, well then that's an amazing question to ask right? Like, I'm really, like, I really want to connect with you. I want to understand your experiences. But if the question is asked in such a way as, well, gosh, there's something wrong about you. Why is it that way? Uh, Then that's sort of a problem, right? It it really depends on how the question's asked. So I I completely agree with you. If the person uh, is is an ally, is friendly and nice, and is just really genuinely curious and respectful, then I think it's a great opportunity to have conversation uh, to move forward. I think that's great. Thank you. Other questions? Anybody?
0: Be brave.
1: (laughs) Oh, there you go. Oh, wonderful. Okay, I just want to know, I hear a lot of controversy over Are you born gay or do you choose to be gay? Because people come to me all the time and ask me, okay, well, were
0: you born this way or did you just... Yeah.
1: Right. Well, so that question is going to vary depending on who you ask, right? All I know is that there is no research that really answers that question definitively. All right. Uh, I'm a sociologist, so I'm biased by sociology. And what I can say is that norms regarding sexuality vary from culture to culture, right? In some cultures, if you think about ancient Greece, there's tons of people who were gay running around ancient Greece, and it wasn't defined as a negative bad thing, right? Uh, So we find that like the conceptions vary from culture to culture. Uh, The answer to that question is really going to vary depending on who you're talking to. In psychology, we have uh, Freud who basically believes everybody's born bisexual, and then throughout our experiences with our parents and in our lives and so on, our sexual orientation develops. Uh, But the the question of are you born or are you choose is really a false binary Uh, because for most people, uh, nobody chooses their sexual orientation and people aren't necessarily born with one either. For instance, if we look at children who are raised in isolation, uh, children who are raised without uh, interaction by parents and so on, uh, they don't really have a concept of sexual orientation. Uh, So it's really questionable as to whether or not anybody is born with any sexual orientation. Uh, but yeah, the, there's tons of research that tries to answer that question, and nobody's figured it out yet. And hopefully, we don't. I like I like a mystery. So <laughs> it's a great question, though. Hey, Jeffrey, long time no see. Um, How's it going, my friend? I just had a baby boy. I know. I I saw the pictures. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, I let him wear pink sometimes, and he has a pink blanket, and stuffed animal. And somebody said something to me, and I didn't know how to handle it, because I was asked if I was raising a transgendered boy. And how would you how would you deal with something like that? He's just, he's four months old. Like, <laughs> he doesn't know. <laughs> that, that's probably what I would say. No. <laughs> uh, thankfully, I'm not a parent, so I never have to deal with that. Uh, but... Uh, Yeah, that's what I would say. Like, this child has no idea. And pink. Oh, I'm so glad you chose pink. Because pink and blue, this is also socially constructed, all right? Uh, Historically in the United... We say today, like, pink is a color for girls and blue is a color for boys. But historically in this country, it was the opposite. We used to give... We used to dress our little boys in pink and we used to dress our little girls in blue. And that's actually still a popular convention in Poland, to dress the girls in blue and to dress the boys in pink. So anybody who's worried that putting a pink blanket on a boy is going to make the baby transgender or queer or some other way, uh, I think that person, you know, maybe doesn't really understand that the kid doesn't understand, you know. (laughs) I don't know how I would handle that, though. I honestly was kind of shocked. Oh, (laughs) I was shocked, and I was kind of like, well, I guess he is gay. And I left it at that, so... um, That's perfect, Morgan. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. Like, that's why I'm like, maybe Jeffrey would help me. (laughs) I just like to leave people wondering. So whatever you can say to make them still be confused, even better.
0: Well, and let me say, I am a parent, and if it's just because of a color of a blanket that you're going to mess them up, there's a lot more ways you're going to mess them up. Oh, right. Totally. Other questions? All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Let's everyone, thank for, for you. Thank I really you
1: appreciate all. it. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Tomorrow, another lecture in the library, um, different subject, engineering. So math, science, technology folks, feel free to come by about career of engineering. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.